You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. Yes, we are doing the job that other media will not do, including the conservative media. Great to be back with you today on Wednesday, December 26th, here at the conservative conscience. This is Daniel Horowitz at Blaze Media. And, uh, you know, in, in, in the normal America, we would have said today is the day after Christmas. Um, I guess now in uh, Absurdistan, we'll say Happy Kwanzaa, because that is the America we live in, an America without a front door. We have a shutdown. No, not the government shutdown. That's not shut down. That is the non-essential workers of the 30% of, no, of, of the 25% of the 30% that had an appropriation lapse. In other words, 70% of spending is mandatory spending that is not funded by the government, that is not funded by appropriations, that's automatic through statute. Only 30% is discretionary, and 75% of that discretionary budget has been funded. So it's just the remaining 25%. And um, in terms of departments, it is treasury, agriculture, DHS, Interior, State, HUD, Transportation, Commerce, and Justice. By the way, it's funny that 86% of the Commerce Department and 95% of HUD workers are deemed non-essential. <laughs> Why the heck do we have them? But that's what we have going on. So for that little bit that's supposedly shut down, if you understand the severity of a nation-state shutdown because we don't have a border wall and real border policies... It pales in comparison, and that's going to be the theme today, but today's going to be a very special show. Hope you guys enjoyed your Christmas break, by, by the way. Um, some have off all week, so hopefully you'll have more time to listen to this. We don't take off all week because there's a lot to do this week. Probably the busiest um, end of year ever we had because of what's going on, but there's so many foundational things going on. We're going to bring on my buddy Todd Benzman today to speak about particularly the national security Middle Eastern terrorism angle of the border that is completely ignored by the media because if they actually had to cover it, the American people would recognize the severity of the border problem and they would completely lose control of the messaging on this issue. But we now have a society where we don't have a national front door. See, imagine if, as you well know, I live outside of Baltimore. And it's a pretty bad place. Imagine if I went downtown, refereed the wars between the Bloods and the Crips and all the gangs, and then hung up signs while I was there and said, hey, come to my house at this address and just come there. And then at home, meanwhile, my front door breaks. Now, a front door costs a lot of money. I mean, if you want to buy it and get it installed... Even a no-frills door, when you take into the co- uh, into account the cost of the door and installation, it's like $1,500, $2,000. I mean, unless you do it yourself, that, that's a lot of money. But if you don't have that door, it's a heck of a lot 
worse in terms of money, in terms of the security of your family and yourself. Especially when your house is particularly targeted, and especially when you essentially invite them in. You're done. All your wealth is gone. All your life and security is gone. That is America. Our front door is their southern border. The heads of the household are those elected to represent us in government. And we are the household. I'm going to have out today a piece quantifying the cost of not having a border wall and other things that we need. The 2,000 plus homicides a year, every year from illegals. The hundreds of billions of cost, cost in, in, in drugs, as well as the tens of thousands killed by it. We're going to have over a million of these impoverished people come this year, detected and undetected, at an enormous cost. Anywhere from 75000 to 150000 over their lifetime. You recoup the cost of a $25 billion border wall, and Trump's only asking for $5 billion, which isn't enough, will be made, made up in a, in a few weeks of preventing illegals from coming here. It is a crushing burden. We try to quantify it in this piece. But like I said, we're going to talk today. You know, we'll, we'll get to that later this week. Today, we're going to focus specifically on the terrorism, Middle Eastern, SIA angle. But I just wanted to say, so there's no misunderstanding. People forget. We have, in this country, 50 state governments that are totally functioning. We have over 3,000 county governments. We have 90,000 municipality and local governments of some sort. They're all functioning. Why do we need a federal government? Why do we need a federal government? Well, Madison and Federalist 45 explained the arrangement of state and federal governments. It's very, very simple. A very simple arrangement that he explained. The powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government, federal, are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former, meaning the feds, will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which last the power of taxation will for the most part be connected. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. The operation of the federal government will be most extensive and important in times of war and danger. Those are the state governments in times of peace and, and security. As the former periods will probably bear a small proportion to the latter, the state governments will here enjoy another advantage of the federal government. The more, listen to this, the more adequate indeed the federal powers may be rendered to the national defense, the less frequent will be those scenes of danger which might favor their ascendancy over the governments of the particular states. <laughs> Look at that. You focus on your job and then you don't infringe upon health care, agriculture, education, everything. No, that, that, that's not supposed to be the federal government's job. Their job is external. External. Not internal order, external order. One more very fascinating line here from Madison. If the new constitution be examined with accuracy and candor, it will be found that the change which 
it proposes consists much less in the addition of new powers, he writes in capitals, to the union, than in the invigoration of its original powers. Think about that. He was saying there's nothing new here. The main part wasn't to expand new powers. It was because the Articles of Confederation were just deemed insufficient in dealing with the protection of all of our sovereignty. And I always say, probably the biggest thing was immigration. That's why we have a federal government. Because the states were letting in people to, certain ones letting in people to loosely because they wanted more representation. And you needed someone to protect the entire federal union. Madison wrote in a 1782 letter to Edmund Randolph. So that was under the, that was the period of governing, of governing under the Articles of Confederation. And he said that a uniform rule of naturalization for a future federal government would cure the existing problem under the Confederation of, quote, the intrusion of obnoxious aliens through other states. Think about that. That, that was one of his prime, the primary factors driving the need to create a federal government. And then later on, once they created it, or at least conceived of it, and then they were trying to get it ratified, when they wrote the Federalist Papers in Federalist 42, Madison elaborates on that federalized power over naturalization that it solved, quote, a very serious embarrassment, unquote, and, quote, defect of the Articles of Confederation, whereby, quote, certain descriptions of aliens who had rendered themselves obnoxious, unquote, can basically force themselves on states had they, quote, acquired the character of citizens under the laws of another state. They wanted a uniform rule to guard us that we only bring in people that will benefit our country and certainly not people that will shove us with diseases, make us impoverished, crime, and then, of course, terrorism and subversion and Sharia law. That is why we have a federal government. And if we cannot have it operate under that, we have a shutdown. We have a nation-state shutdown. We have state and municipality governments, 90,000 of them to deal with internal order. This is why we have a federal government. This is why we have it. As Scalia said, the naturalization power was given to Congress not to abrogate states' power to exclude those they didn't want, but to vindicate it, to double down on it. It was to be more strict than states. In other words, border security. Stopping overstays of visas, you could say, is a similar thing. We're not doing that. So we have a shutdown. That is the shutdown the media doesn't want to talk about. And you know, one other thing, they sit and talk about now, there's this new thing, they started with ICE shaming, now it's border patrol shaming, where everyone who dies... Once they get into Border Patrol custody after they're trying to save their lives from this dangerous trek at the hands of their horrible parents and uh, drug cartels, now it gets blamed upon the Border Patrol. We'll talk about that at another point, but I want to get to our guest to talk about the special interest aliens and the Middle Eastern problem of Middle Easterns flooding our country from the border, not just through the visas, which is a whole problem in itself, that increasingly we're having more of Europe's problem, even though we're far away from the Middle East. 
And as I mentioned earlier, I've been clamoring for the last two weeks to get my friend Todd Benzman on this show. Todd, for those of you who don't know, he was on the show earlier this year. New friend of mine. Um, this is someone who has a very unique background. I think that his voice needs to be heard, and I'm thankful he's now in the public. He was in Texas Department of Public Safety Intel Division for about a decade, studying counterterrorism at the border. But he was a journalist prior to that, covering Latin American affairs for Dallas Morning News, Hearst Paper, CBS. And now, after being un- being shackled you know, in the Intel community, he is free, a free spirit to write and report on what is going on. He's now Senior National Security Fellow at our friends or with our friends at the Center for Immigration Studies. He writes for them, for PJ Media, now at the Middle East Forum. He's going to be writing for The Federalist. We're going to show you where to get all of his work. But he just went to Panama and Costa Rica to study what's going on. And boy, does he have a lot to report on. Hey, Todd, I don't know how we're going to get this in in one show, but thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for that great intro. Yeah, thanks for all you do. And by the way, um, before we go on, um, follow him at Benzman Todd on Twitter. We'll link to that as well in the show notes. Um, This is stuff even other conservative media is not doing, and it's really the most important thing. Um, You know, just to kind of frame this here, I've noticed the media doesn't like talking about the vices of illegal immigration slash open borders. None of it. I mean, the disease aspect, the criminal aspect, the public charge aspect. But there's one area that they really cannot allow to percolate into the national consciousness, and that is the threat of terrorism and Middle Easterners in general coming over, um, because that will really nuke their entire agenda. Could you just give us a general sense of when you went down to Panama to look at the, you know, that's the junction of all the flow going up north. They have to go through Panama at some sort, whether they originally come by land, air, or sea to Brazil or elsewhere. They have to come north. Um, Did you find about the same, less, or more of a problem than what you were seeking originally in this trip? Yeah, well, so... Let me just a little bit of background. I mean, one reason that, you know, we wanted to go down to Panama is because it is so rare that anybody speaks about that kind of traffic coming through Latin America uh, right up to our border. It's been happening for years. Uh, I've written about it for years and I've talked about it a little bit and studied it, certainly for the um, for my intelligence work. Uh, but really not until this president. I, I don't believe I've ever heard a president talk about it. And so when President Trump uh, first brought it up in October, claiming that you know Middle Easterners might be moving with the caravan, and then he uh, you know talked about about it in terms of um, you know terrorists coming through, and that he knew that that terrorists had come through. Uh, then he. He spoke about it again uh, recently as justification for the wall, and every time he brings that up, it uh, you know evokes you know a tremendous amount of scorn and mockery and criticism and denialism. 
rejectionism. Nobody believes him. You know, where's the proof? Show us the proof. That sort of thing, right? I, I know we all remember that because it's it's just it has been happening for the last only the last few months. I've never heard a president talk about it, and it leaves people with a lot of confusion and unresolved issue because those matters are typically classified. The information is classified, and it's very hard for a, a, a reporter to to you know, establish facts on the ground because you have to travel. It's hard. It's expensive. It's in other places that are kind of scary. Uh, so, you know, people don't, you know, media uh, just say, give us the evidence. And the president's like, uh, well, you know, there is evidence. I've seen it. I've seen the intelligence. I just can't give it to you. And then it just is all left in this sort of muddled dispute land uh, where most people are kind of like, yeah, that's probably just not even really happening. That's kind of the backdrop. So I wanted to go down to Panama because Panama is where I know from my work as both a journalist and as an intelligence uh, officer, that that's where this traffic moves through in a bottleneck way from South America, people from the Middle East, People from Pakistan and Afghanistan, people from Bangladesh, from all of the countries uh, that are of terrorism concern, if they're coming, if they enter first through South America, they have to bottleneck, they have to go through that choke point of Panama. If you look at the map, you know that's a very narrow, that's where they built the Panama Canal because you could, you know, punch through from one ocean to the other. It's, it's skinny. So I knew that, that I would be able to see something down there, and I'd never been to Panama before. So uh, I went to Panama, and the bottom line up front there is that I found hundreds of migrants from all of those countries on their way to the United States border. I saw them. I spoke with them. I interviewed them. So they are coming. They are there. The, the the other issue is that I spoke with a lot of uh, intelligence officials and government officials and about the more classified side of things and learned also that that there are U.S. programs that are specifically designed to filter for terrorists in this migration flow through Panama. And what they told me now, I'm not going to tell you I found a terrorist because, you know, it's not that easy to just walk up to somebody and say, are you a terrorist? <laughs> and they say, yes, that just doesn't happen. Uh, but but the intelligence people who work this problem in Panama and also Costa Rica tell me tell me that that there are terrorists that they have pulled off the line there. They do it all the time. Actually, they pull people off and they have a deportation program that has never been publicized to the American public, uh, where people who have terrorist histories and backgrounds are jailed, interrogated, and then deported to their countries of origin. And that's what I found. And I have uh, reporting on all of this uh, going up even now at the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, we've been kind of posting it uh, piecemeal and there's probably another two or three. There's a big video report that I did that will be posted 
I'm going to guess right after the new year. And then another uh, column about it as well. And then the Federalist. Yeah, and we're going to link to your landing page at CIS. There's a landing page of all your materials, your videos, your interviews, your write-ups, what you discovered. We we can't cover it all just in one show. It's truly fascinating. I was dreaming about you last night. I was thinking about Panama because I went to sleep uh, watching one of the videos you sent me. And... Um, you know, and, and you know, you made a distinction between terrorism, you know, known terrorists and and uh, Middle Easterners, and I, I want to talk about both problems, um, because what you saw at the antecedent, you know, the like, you know, the 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 bottom of the chain there, really the the controlling part, which is from Panama. I hear this from the Border Patrol that th- there's two types of people. So there's the general asylum problem that we have where you know the courts uh obama administration now it's codified by the courts have announced that basically anyone could just come and say they have a credible fear so you know obviously in sheer numbers it's going to be mainly the central americans because of a geography and b we've let in so many legally and illegally so they're coming as kirsten nielsen said for family reunification but that notion that you have an open border to everyone is going to invite all sorts of people. So you're going to have all sorts of Middle Easterners coming through the front, you know, kind of surrendering themselves to the border agents. And then you're going to have the more terrorist or concern elements that will be the ones for which the, the drug cartels shove the other migrants into the Border Patrol's hand, tie them up. And then they'll bring in the people that they really charge 28,000 to really get a successful, um, infiltration where they don't get caught and i'm looking at the statistic cbp put out that in fiscal year 2017 they don't have 2018 yet 3755 known or suspected terrorists were caught entering the u.s i'm thinking that that's a very strong term known or suspected terrorists if you're telling me 3755 in one fiscal year were known or suspected terrorists that means there's a heck of a lot of in the tens of thousands heck of a lot more Middle Easterners that have downright made it there. Does that make sense that there would be tens of thousands in a given year, at least 10,000, given what you saw in Panama? There's a problem with that data. And I've seen the data. I know what you're talking about. Uh, Lots of people have forwarded it to me. Uh, The problem with the data is that it's not broken down between different kinds of ports of entry. And I am going to say that if we're talking about the border, you want to know how many of those 3,000 tried to enter through a land border. Mm. But there are lots of other borders. Uh, Airports are considered borders. And I expect that the vast majority of that 3,000 number came in through airports. Got it. And a much smaller number came in through the border. And so that's, that's pretty problematic with the data if you're talking about what we are talking about. And so if if you and I are talking about Panama and the land border and Latin America and migrant caravans, which is really, I thought was what we were all talking about, then that data has to be broken out for that problem set. And they did not do that with that data. As far as I can find, I can't, that's a good point. Yeah. Because I mean, border patrol is the border, but CBP broadly is, you know, their agents at the airports. And yeah, I mean, because we need that data. So what I want to do is divide up between two sections. The known, 
you know, the, 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 those that migrate through Panama op- openly, and then those that try to hide themselves the same way they're going to try to hide themselves when they get to our border, um, and then try to go through the different types that we're seeing. So what, what I was shocked about most, what I saw your report, I always figured they're mainly just kind of hiding. And, you know, they have these smuggling routes that they pay all sorts of smugglers to, to go through. Um, and then they eventually get up to, to America. You, you reported on something that you called controlled flow that a lot of them do it openly. And the Panamanian government has a process for dealing with them and they downright yeah. almost facilitate it. What am I missing about no, that? What, what? No, they, they don't almost facilitate it. The, the government openly uh, and purposefully smuggles the migrants through their territories. <laughs> that is a formal policy. Uh, the, there's, there's some rationale behind it. Uh, it definitely would be controversial if the general public, if the American public knew this. Uh, there would probably be some outcry about it because just on the face of it, to have a government moving migrants from the Middle East deliberately to our border is problematic. It can be problematic. But let me just explain a little bit what's going on. Uh, what I found was and the Panamanians admit this. Everybody, it's, it's, it's wide open. This is no, they're not even, they're not advertising it, but they're also not hiding it because it's very difficult to hide this. If, if uh, you know, a, a reporter just wanted to go down there like I did and go to the uh, a processing center, you can find them. That's where I found hundreds. That's how I found hundreds. I wouldn't have found hundreds if they were sneaking through the jungle. I might have found a few at the bus station or something. You know, um, but what happens is that that this migrant flow is coming in from Panama, uh, from through the Darien Gap from Colombia into Panama in a, a jungle area called the, the Darien Gap. And they're using pretty well-established old FARC trails. It's eight or nine days. Sometimes it can be a little bit shorter if the smuggler knows a good route. And they're just pouring in off of the jungle. The Panamanian military police are out there with choppers and foot patrols at all of the main junctures. And the Panamanian police and the migrants all know that they need to meet each other out there in the jungle. It's all pre-arranged. Everybody knows this. So the migrants turn themselves into the Panamanian military by the hundreds, uh, probably about 700 a week right now. It goes up and down depending on country conditions, like in Somalia, yeah. if there's a problem. Se- several uh, hundred a week. Down. That's what you several hundred a week? 700 are out per week. So, you know, about 3,000 a hundred per week. So I just want, I, I get, yeah. I, I want to just slow it down here for our listeners here. You know, um, for, for those that are uh, geographically challenged here, we're talking about south of the main migration problem to America. This is south of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. So we're not talking about the Central American flow because we're south of that. Um, oh, these are, for everybody from the rest of the world, places like, you know, it could be Cameroon, sure. but a, a really, a really good chunk of them, it could be Haitian. There, ha- lot, there were Haitians a year or two ago that were Cubans. It depends on what's happening out there in the world. 
but always you have a significant number from the Middle East, from South Asia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, places that, that, that like Indonesia, places where there are real terrorist organizations operating and where you have a lot of problems, like in Bangladesh. So those people are coming through that jungle. They get picked up, they get collected by the Panamanian military, and then they uh, put in rest camps. I call them rest camps. They're not migrant camps where you have barbed wire. I saw two of them. I found them and drove right up to two of these camps. Uh, surprised the police. They swarmed me. Uh, nobody's supposed to go to these camps. Nobody's even supposed to know about these camps. But I knew about them and found them. And they put, they put them in these rest camps. They're wandering around. They're not even locked. Uh, people are just sort of free to come and go in the, the local town. Uh, to go to Western Union, uh, they eat, they get uh, provided with medical treatment, uh, and then finally legal papers. From there, the government gathers them up in a systematic, organized way and, and, and gets them onto commercial buses. The buses go through Panama City from the Darien. I was in the Darien, and then I was in Panama City as well, so I saw this work and then in Panama City, they transfer systematically to another bus with their permission slips. And then they're brought and delivered to the Costa Rican uh, police immigration uh, service at the border, typically at a place called Paso Canoas. So if you look at my material, you'll see that I was in a town called Paso Canoas. And this process was explained to me by intelligence friends exactly where and how it works. So when I got to Paso Canoas on the Panamanian side, I just crossed over to the Costa Rica side, and the buildings and geography were exactly as they were explained to me. <laughs> so I just walk over to the immigration processing facility, and there they all were, right there being processed. Pakistanis, Lebanese. I met and interviewed four Iranians, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans, all concentrated there. And then it's rinse, wash, and repeat. The Costa Ricans gather them all up, put them in rest camps. I actually went to one of the rest camps in a town called Golfito, about 30 miles inland from that, the that, that's border. That's in Costa Rica, right? In Costa Rica. On the Pacific Coast. Uh, it's not on the coast. It's inland a little bit. Oh, okay. uh, so it's, I mean, it's on the main highway, you know, Highway 1, mm -hmm. the uh, the the main highway that runs all the way through uh, Central America. That um, camp uh, was just like the one I saw in Panama, and everybody there explained to me that I interviewed about like how nice everyone was, and they're moving them through. And then they go to the their bust again in the same way to the Nicaraguan border. The Nicaraguans don't really cooperate with any of this. So at that point, the smugglers take over again, uh, and then there, then you and, have and the certainly, regular old and certainly Daniel Ortega, you know, and the government there, they hate America, so they're certainly not going to stop it. You're just saying there's no organized, you know, from Panama and Costa Rica, you're saying it's totally organized. At least the ones that choose to join that. If you're really a terrorist element, you might, you know, kind of want to go the smuggling route from day one, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I. I, I haven't been to Nicaragua. They, I mean, they tell me that 
that the Nicaraguan uh, authorities pretty much just allow this uh, migration through their territory. As long as they're not staying and as long as they're not dying on those territories, the governments in those areas want this migrant uh, train to, to keep moving. This is like a conveyor belt. And it's under formal policy. And there's a couple problems with it. One is it doesn't do anything to deter this traffic. It helps it, no? Helps it and encourages it. Uh, From a security standpoint, that's a little problematic. But on the other hand, the Americans are are taking advantage of this by uh, being able to, like me, see concentrations of people from countries of terrorism concern. So like Syria, you know, if like all the Syrians can be found pretty quickly in this way, and as opposed to, you know, we're missing them in the jungle. So there's kind of, it's a double-edged sword. So the Americans have programs that have been built up around this, this policy. And one of them is called Bitmap. And Bitmap allows the Americans to uh, take eye retinal scans, fingerprints, and uh, facial recognition photos of every migrant that takes advantage of the government program. And in that way, a number of them have been uh, tagged as potential terrorists. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, but but there are lots that go through there where there's there's no intelligence on them prior. So we don't know. They just they just move on through, and then you know we don't know who they are. And that, that's sort of they're a higher risk sure. kind of uh, migrant. Most of them, just to be fair here, I would say most of them are going to be just economic migrants. Oh, of course, or they're fleeing some kind of legitimate persecution. But, 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 but Todd, I mean, this is what bothers me. This is what scares me about what happened in Europe. Uh, some of the problem was known terrorists coming in, but a lot of it was just organic migration over time. These people, you know, they, they might not have been professional terrorists before they came, but they were fervent Sharia believers, and they caused problems. And so my, my concern about this policy, what we're seeing is that you're right. It's better to – if you're going to have an invasion and have an open border at our border, and you know they're coming through Panama, to at least try to make it organized so you could – um try to identify who they are, but that's only if your goal is to bring them in, albeit weed out the terrorists. But if your goal is not to bring them in, what I don't understand is for the same money that we set up these programs to try to manage the flow, why don't we help establish in Panama programs to, no, make them not, like as you call them, rest camps, to make them detention camps to deter. And if you come, you'll be put there and the Americans will run it and you'll be sent back. Well, I've been advocating that for quite a while now, that that Panama is the place to have a an infrastructure in, in, in place, a working infrastructure where you can detain uh, and t- put them through whatever legal processes Panama requires and then deport them. Uh, just move them back because that would have a, a strong deterring impact. I, I suspect that, you know, one day when uh, there's an Edmonton, a Canada, an attack like there was in Edmonton, Canada, where Somali crossed the California Mexico border and instead of attacking here, attacked in Canada, when that happens at, on U.S. soil, we're going to be revisiting this whole issue with what Panama and Costa Rica are doing down there. But 
I interviewed several Panamanian uh, elected leaders who are in the ruling coalition for, for the government there. Government would not talk to me about any of this. Too sensitive, they said. Sure. But I did, I did get a number, some interviews with uh, assemblymen. And what they told me is that, that they understand the need to, for Panama to have some kind of an infrastructure like this, but they acknowledge that they're not going to invest in American security. It's not in their interest sure. to invest in American security at our border, and they don't have the budget. They just don't have the budget. I mean, we don't have the budget right now. We're fighting for the budget. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes sense uh, to me. I mean, if, if we're going to have – if we have courts literally saying that the def- – we had that last week. A district judge said that asylum doesn't mean asylum. It doesn't mean a, a individualized persecution. I mean, basically anyone could say I, I live in a kind of crappy place, which is, you know, several billion people to our standards, and they could come here. Well, if that's the case, they're going to come. So if you put yourself in Panama's shoes, <laughs> they'll say, hey, we may as well make it a conveyor belt. You know, as long as they don't stay here and they're not trying to stay here, they're all trying to come north. Um, and that way, maybe we can identify them. Uh, so we'll take money from America to, you know, the hardware and, and infrastructure we gave them to try to communicate with us. And uh, and that's it. And, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Hey, Americans, if you want to secure your border, you do it. But you got to deter it. Um, you know, my question to you is how many of them ultimately wind up surrendering themselves when they get up north the same way they surrender themselves to the Panamanian police and how many of them are part of that route where they pay 28,000 to the Mexican smugglers to, you know, in other words, they're the recipient of the migration while the border patrol is dealing with, let's say the Guatemalans, they'll come in and be smuggled in because they do not want to be caught. Well, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to, when I was on the intelligence side, I had the answer to that. Uh, I knew the numbers. I can't, I'm not really allowed to talk numbers, right? Uh, so, uh, but I'll, I'll just say this, that all of, almost all of those who are crossing into Panama, going through Panama-Costa Rica route, who are Middle East, from the Middle East or South Asia, from those 20 or 30 countries of interest, uh, that make their way to the U.S. border are declaring asylum. They're turning themselves in when they get to the border. That segment of migrant probably has a far better chance of achieving asylum than would any Central American because they're coming from places where they can you know, make a legitimate claim that you know, there's warfare, uh, there's a mean dictator, there's, uh, you know, they're battening down on Christians or, you know, some, you know, Islamic sect that's out of favor or whatever political party. Uh, so they're all going to pretty much declare asylum when they get to our border. Uh, Somalis, uh, you know, are notorious. You know, they claim asylum because they say their government is, um, oh, won't you know, all that sort of thing. <laughs> so they are going to go through the asylum process. They have a far better chance of, uh, achieving the asylum. But, uh, once they, once they, you know, it's still the same issue that they they come in to our camp, our you know detention facilities, and they bond out within a couple of months. Most of them, 
without really anybody ever getting to do security interviews or anything else, and then they're out. That was the issue in Europe during the migrant crisis, is that they, the, the Europeans were overwhelmed by numbers of asylum, asylum seekers, and it, it created these long backlogs. And at least by my count, 90 terrorists got through and conducted attacks or committed uh, or were arrested uh, plotting to, to conduct attacks. And we have a big body count in Europe over this. So a lot of this has to do with, you know, the prevention part of this has to do with the processes for this particular kind of migrant, it being higher risk at the U.S. border and at the Panamanian border. I will say this, though, about the uh, one thing that I've learned in Panama was that there is a, a an American-inspired repatriation program going on. Uh, what I was told is they are finding known or suspected terrorists in this crowd, in this uh, flow. They pull them offline. They conduct interviews. They don't arrest they don't charge or convict but sure. they put them on and they're flying them home and at least getting them out of the mix that doesn't mean they couldn't turn around and come back and try it again but sure you know that that starts to get expensive with those kind of distances it's not like central americans so uh, there is a, a a repatriation flight program that nobody knows about that's going on it's very secretive because it involves you know, suspected terrorists. Are, are we funding uh, it or in part? We are funding it in whole, uh. complete taxpayer expense. And th- I think that's a good thing, but it's sure. not, it's not because, because it's not known. It's not deter. It doesn't have a deterrent value. Nobody knows. And, and, and that's what that bothers me here. It, it seems like, I mean, the Panamanian government seems to be relatively good relative to, you know, some of the other Latin American governments. But like you said, they're, you know, they got to worry about themselves. Um, it's hard enough to govern a country like that. So if we give them resources to treat symptoms, they'll very narrowly treat the symptoms we ask them to treat. Okay, known terrorists will try to weed out. The rest, hey, dude, you know, you go eat it. You go have an open border policy. They come here because they want to go there, not want to stay here. We're just going to shove them up north. Um, so I just want to just circle back just to the fundamentals. So whereas the media says like, what are you talking about? This doesn't exist. Like, you know, like you're saying there is actually concerted programs to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. American program, taxpayer funded programs going on to, with, with, uh, that are staffed by Homeland Security intelligence people and law enforcement in both of those countries. Did, did you see them on this? Did, did you see Americans on the ground there, or is just the hardware you saw? No, I did see Americans on the ground, but I can't really talk too much about that. Sure. But they they're they're there, and uh, you know they're you know when when those and I asked I asked one of them that I met with, uh, you know what when when you saw Donald Trump make these claims, and then and then most of the media establishment say it was all a lie and that there was there were no Middle Easterners. What did you think? And, you know, all uh, I mean, it's eye rolling and like, you know, disgust that their work, the work that they're doing down there doesn't exist. exist. (laughs) (laughs) Like they're not. This isn't a thing. It's not a real thing. None of it's real. But it is real. 
And the Panamanians are putting people on airplanes and flying them home to Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, we had just last year, about this time, uh, a Somali that was caught in the camp that I visited at Golfito. And the, immigra- the Costa Rican immigration officials in that camp well remembered him. Uh, and not just him. They told me that after that that Somali uh, was pulled off the route, uh, there were uh, several more, and that's just in the last year, several more pulled off of that route as well, put into interrogation, security, uh, inter- uh, security interviews, intelligence, deep dives, and all the rest of that, and then ultimately put on planes home as well. This is a steady state ongoing process where they find people with terrorism intelligence related terrorism related intelligence on them already could have been from a military raid or you know they they found a fingerprint on an ied in iraq you know six years ago and it matched uh that that sort of thing it's it's imperfect but it's happening and they are finding known and suspected terrorists on this route in Panama and Costa Rica. They did it. They're finding it. It's true. You know, and what concerns me is that, you know, the the border migration has become a protected class because I follow the court angle and, you know, more so than those at seaports, you know, because it's just polit- political because it's identity politics. A lot of us do with the Central Americans and therefore you have the catch and release. And, you know, until now, I spent a number of years focusing on the visa problem. You know, the fact that we let in record numbers to the Middle East through all these programs, whether it's refugee, whether it's student visas or just other uh, visas that lead to green cards. We give out, you know, 150, 170,000, both green cards and then um, student visas to people from SIA countries every single year. And, you know, that was the problem. But at least we didn't have the uncontrolled European problem of, hey, you know, they're right over there, so they just come in through the land. But, you know, what we see here is that you actually have that problem. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not the same numbers that we have from from the Guatemalans and Hondurans. But what, what I want to get your comment on based on your trip is is this. A couple, I want to put a couple things together here for our listeners and for you. Um, over the weekend, Politico did an article on the shutdown. This was titled, Trump Sees Dangerous Cracks in Hill GOP Support. And they quoted an anonymous Republican senator. Of course, he didn't want to go on the record. And he said, Syria is crumbling. And we're talking about an effing wall? Um, I want to put that together with comments that uh, Iranian President Rouhani said a couple weeks ago that he threatened to... um, flood the West, or he said it passively, they will be flooded with, what did he say? Drugs, migrants, terrorists, and bombs. To me, I put myself in Rouhani's shoes or any of these guys, any of these countries or these groups, uh, Sunni or Shia, they know we have an open border policy with the courts and the asylum and the quasi-asylum and the lack of a border wall. They know that there's a process in Panama and Costa Rica to to shunt them through. Isn't this just a prima facie, straight up problem that they could attack us with? Absolutely. Wide open, 
that is the, if I were them, I would do that. <laughs> you know, if I wanted to really cause problems, I would, that's what I would do. Uh, you know, it, the really, the issue here is, you know, do we have the resources and processes in place to vet, to find and vet, sufficiently vet? Uh, because, you know, like I, I met four Iranians in Costa Rica. And actually, one of them spoke English, and so I was able to interview him about the re- about him and the rest of them that he was with. And, and there was an Iraqi standing nearby, and he helped me, you know, interview the Iraqi as well. When you're traveling like that, you can't bring a, a staff of uh, language of linguists with you, so you you just have to make do with what you find on the ground there. But the Iranians are a high value migrant. I know from my time with Texas Department of Public Safety on the border that when an Iranian shows up at our border, and they do, uh, all the three-letter agencies rush down there and elbow each other out of the way to get a chance to interview that Iranian. And the reason is because Iranians are, are not so much a active terrorist kind of case, although they could, they could flip. The, the switch could be flipped on any of them if they were intelligence officers, but it's that it's an intelligence counterintelligence issue. We want to know our our guys want to know whether that guy, that Iranian that showed up at the border, is an intelligence agent sent here. In other words, for our listeners, that you, a lot of the places they're coming from are just lawless. They're just full of terrorism, but it's not government orchestrated, like Somalia and Yemen don't really exist. Whereas Iran, that's the biggest terrorist government, meaning the government themselves, uh, they have a strong government, they have an organized government. And so it's not just, oh, it could be a random Muhammad jihadist, but not random, a guy that's downright, you're saying, sent by the Iranians. Yeah. So the so the issue is with those, with Iranians, just for example, or really for with a lot of countries, Koreans, or Chinese that that come in over the borders. There's a whole intelligence and counterintelligence component to this that governments can send somebody in, and it, I mean, if you you and your listeners probably know this, but intelligence officers of other countries and ours too are specifically trained. They go through training to be able to weather interviews and interrogations and, and hold their cover. That is their, that is part, that's a fundamental part of their training that the Iranians, especially uh, unit 910, they get their, they get significant training in being able to withstand uh, interviews by a, an adversarial intelligence officer. Uh, so that's why Iranians are a particular problem when they come to the border and I found four of them that are on their way. And I guarantee you that there is going to be many, many, many hours of grueling interviews with these guys once they get there. And I even asked them, do you think that you're going to have a problem when you get to the U.S. border? <laughs> and they're saying, yeah, well, maybe, you know, <laughs> I put I put um, on our site, CIS, I put the full transcript of my interview with the Iranian up if anybody wants to go look at it. Sure, as well as we're going to link to that page, and um, so I, I want to. In the remaining time, we're running out of time here. I want to. I want to trace this a little bit farther north when they get into the Central American Northern Triangle. Um, 
you know, our buddies at the Center for, uh, um, what do you call them? The Center for a Free, Secure Free Society. Um, now our mutual friend, Joseph Humeyer, runs a show there. And they put out a report on the caravan that there were 189 irregular migrants or SIAs, so meaning not just terrorist countries, but like you said, it could be from Cameroon and places in Africa. Our Muslim countries aren't terrorist countries um, that were with the caravan. And they made a big deal of saying that the, the caravan was taking the SIA route. Could you explain what that means? You know, kind of tracing it from Panama, but going all the way through Mexico. Yeah, I mean, there, there are... There are established crossing points at borders. So for example, uh, between at the border between uh, Guatemala and Mexico, uh, SIAs and Central Americans alike like to cross at a place called Tuca Amun, which uh, if you remember the, the videotape of the newsreels of the bridge that was packed with humanity, remember? That bridge, it's an, it, kind yep. of an aerial view. That's at that crossing point. Typically, they're not crossing on that bridge. They're on the river below on these inner tubes. So you could call that an SIA. I, I've been there uh, as well in you know, tracking SIAs. Uh, so that is a that is both. It's a it's a you know it's just migrants cross there. So I I don't think that SIA migrants have particularly different routes than Central Americans. Uh, and then once they get to Mexico, uh, Mexico is a very, very long country to traverse to get to the United States. So it has to be done by road and rail. And most of the uh, road systems have checkpoints. The Mexican authorities will uh, have checkpoints and you have to go around them or through them with a story, uh, or you turn yourself into the Mexicans and apply for asylum. That process doesn't usually distinguish between you know nationality where they're from. Uh, so, so the, it's the same highways and the same crossings uh, typically on the way to the U.S. So, I, I want to bring this all together. I want to put this all together. Um, I got to let you go. I know you got a flight out soon, and gosh, there's so much more I want to talk about in Panama itself. I'll have to have you back again. But just broadly speaking, you, you look at the geopolitical theater here, where you have even Republican senators now saying, what do we need some effing you know, wall? This is uh, a serious crumbling. And, and in other words, their entire mindset is that our national security is in the Middle East. Their brains don't think about the homeland, about Latin America, um, what, what I want, and you know, you know, look, there, there's a lot more to say here. There, there really are a lot of other things, but I want to come home. You know, we talked about Panama, we traced it up North. I want to come to our homeland. You wrote an article. Um, it's, I'm going to link to this here. It's at the Middle East forum. It was originally published for PJ media reflections on the 10 year anniversary of the Holy land foundation trial. So, you know, you covered terror finance in America, right? These are the bad people in our country funding the very terrorism that we 
claim that we need to get involved in. And I'm not going to drag you into the Syria-Afghanistan debate. But in other words, they think that the problem is Syria and Afghanistan and not here. Could you just give a brief overview of the extent of Hezbollah and others that are literally in America? You know, a lot of them came through visas, not necessarily through the border, but increasingly the border is a problem. And how how much of a threat they are um, and what government is doing or not doing to, to go after them. Yeah, that's, that's a big topic, but, uh, one, one window that opened to us recently is a case, uh, two cases in New York district. I think it's the Eastern district of New York. Uh, these are really fascinating cases. And I wrote a three part series on these cases for PJ media. Uh, really kind of going into the material that the prosecution has been loading into the uh, court files that are publicly available. But of course, nobody's really looking at the court files. Uh, if you go into the court files or just go to my, you know, PJ articles, you'll, you'll see that Hezbollah has a uh, foreign intelligence terrorist wing. And it's called Unit 910, Unit 910. And for years and years, Unit 910 operatives have been seated throughout the United States. Uh, these two operatives that are arrested and being prosecuted are just two of many uh, such operatives. But what's great about the case is that it really lays out how it all works, that these operatives are uh, recruited because they have U.S. residency or passports, uh, maybe they got naturalized. Uh, the, the, the most valuable thing to them is a U.S. passport. Uh, and, you know, you want to have uh, a recruit in the United States who is a true believer in Hezbollah and all of its aims and goals and that they're anti-American. And what they do is they're, they're intelligence operatives. They're here to collect on targets, Jewish businessmen, Israeli businessmen. Uh, American uh, influencers of different kinds that uh, you know might be uh, adversarial to Iranian interests, and these these operatives are seated throughout the United States, but they're to collect. But they're in addition to just collecting targeting information, uh, these kind of operatives also are trained to to go kinetic. They're trained in weapons, and and at the push of a button these guys can be ordered to kill. So when you hear Rouhani or you hear uh, other Iranian leaders, uh, IRGC leaders, make statements like to, to Donald Trump uh, about six months ago, we're closer than you think, and we are going to take uh, actions in a way that you would never expect. That's what they're talking about. They can flick the switch at any moment on these operatives, and we're going to have a problem inside the United States. So far, that hasn't happened. Uh, we, we haven't seen that happen, and there's a, a significant reason, I think, why, why that hasn't happened, why the switch hasn't been flicked. Uh, a, it hasn't gone far enough to, to, into conflict between the United States and Iran. But the other thing is these guys are raising money. Yep. They have all kinds of operations, and uh, you're not going to wreck that because there's significant money coming out of the United States. There's laundering operations. Yep. There's, I mean, that, that there's too much to get into with what they're involved in here. 
in terms of drugs and uh, money laundering and, uh, you know, the auto exports and, you know, all sorts Fake of things. Fake Viagra. Yeah. I mean, you name it, they, they peddle it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's to their benefit to, uh, to uh, not go kinetic, but they could. And that's when, when they make threats like you're talking about earlier in this program, that's what they're talking about. Uh, in a lot of ways, Hamas is the same way. Hamas has been in the United States for decades uh, with clandestine uh, members like the Holy Land Foundation was uh, probably the, the biggest and most notorious of these. The United States rolled all of them up or most all of them up uh, right after 9-11. But they just morph and set up other kind of charitable fundraising organizations. Those charitable uh, fundraising organizations are busy as bees this time of year, just like um, all the rest of them, raising funds and uh, you know funneling that to uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip. What happens overseas in these different countries matters over here in the sense that those people are here, they have representatives and operatives here that are doing their bidding and supporting what's happening over, over there against allies like Israel. Uh, and so I don't know if that gets to your question, but, but I mean, I guess the bottom line is that, that court records and various prosecutions for those of us who, who pay attention and try to knit them together, uh, show that, that, you know, these operations are happening here all the time in all of our major cities, pretty much. Sure. No, I mean, and, and that's, that's the point. I just can't relate to these people that think having 2000 troops in Syria is the end all and then none of these people care about any of the homeland cuz what I'm what I've always taught my listeners for so many years here is that the first most important thing is immigration and homeland security you know it's it's an FBI problem it's a DHS problem it's the military doesn't address when over time you let in thousands of terrorists um that are trained or have ties or believe in this stuff, you could have the strongest military in the world. It doesn't address that problem. Or, you know, we could be in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria from now until the end of times, and it literally will do nothing to address this problem, um, you know, unless we deal with it at a homeland slash immigration level. Uh, gosh, I, I really want you to update us in the future. Come back and update us on some of these trials, um, some of the homeland stuff, Latin America as well. One final question. So, the, so you spoke, mentioned Hezbollah. Um, the New York Times ran an article <laughs> over the weekend um, how they brought Santa Claus to Lebanon. Really, a puff piece on Hezbollah. I guess that's the new, uh, you know, favorite group for them. Um, when you went to Panama. Did, did you what sort of presence did you see there? I've had a lot of experts on the show talk about the presence of Hezbollah in 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 uh, South America, certainly very prominent tri-state area, Venezuela. Did they have a presence in Panama and Costa Rica? You know, uh, that's a that's a good that's a long answer, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll try to make it short. Uh, you know, there, the, earlier this year, the Israeli prime minister met with the president of Panama and they had an official state visit. And as a gift, the Israeli prime minister, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, brought a packet of intelligence about 
1994 airliner downing in Panama. And it was mostly filled with Jewish businessmen uh, who live in Panama and have business there in and, in and around the canal. And uh, the bombing, it turned out it was a bombing. It was an onboard bombing the day after the Argentina bombing in, uh, at the uh, Jewish uh, facility there that killed uh, and wounded just scores and scores of people. There was a Hezbollah bombing. As we know now, the very next day, the one you never heard about was this airline downing in 1994 in Panama. And the prime minister brought intel that that asserted this was a Hezbollah operation and that the only body that was never recovered uh, was a particular person that, that that is known to the Israelis. The Panamanians agreed to open the whole thing up again and uh, do another investigation. I met with members of the Jewish community in Panama while I was there, trying to get a sense of what's happening, and also with uh, Panamanian uh, assembly members asking about it. And I still have a, a pending request with the Israeli government about that case. I'll be writing about that case in the next uh, few weeks, so you can look you can look for my article. Probably, I haven't decided where I'm going to place it, but. For sure, that article will end up with the uh, Middle East Forum, so you can find it there. And um, that that's 1994, but if you fast forward a little bit to the cases I was just talking about out of New York, one of those indicted individuals, as recently as 2012, was sent to Panama to surveil American sites, Panamanian security sites, Israeli sites and Jewish community sites. And that individual, his name is Samir El Debek, actually spent two months down there in Panama gathering information and intel on Panamanian sites. And he was able to get all of that information back to Hezbollah a few years ago. And so they have it. And uh, we have to assume that, that the, that the uh, Hezbollah leadership had a plan for uh panama uh that they were they were that they're still interested in panama i i I can't tell you why they're still interested it's not in the court records but there are strategic sites there you know there are there are businesses and it would be very some symbolic value if they were to bomb them uh in addition to that you have uh we all know about hezbollah in the tri-border area uh, in South America, and uh, they're they're there. They're all over in Peru, Bolivia, uh, Venezuela, but not that many people know that they're in Nicaragua and that they've been with the Don, Daniel Ortega uh, regime. Uh, has sort of coddled a, an embassy there and a presence in Nicaragua, which is just a few borders from us, uh, much closer. And about ten years ago, I went to Nicaragua. Tell me if you're out of time here. I'll, I'll try to wrap it up. But I went. I, I was we have all the time in the world. I was just rushing because of you. <laughs> I could do this forever. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I mean, our, our listeners don't get this anywhere. We get the drive-by, you know, soap opera. And I mean, this is the stuff. What you're saying here now, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, this should be a congressional testimony. But, you know, I, I think we'll start with the show first. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, just to, to wrap up, I mean, you know, the the... The Iranians are uh, interested in 
expanding their threat and to be able to project a credible threat in our backyard for whatever purpose they have. So <clears throat> when President Trump wants to pull out of the nuke agreement and uh, there's saber rattling, uh, what you hear is the Iranians saying, hey, watch out, we're close to you. And that's what they're talking about. They are close to us, uh, not just inside the United States, but with our allies and our friends to our south, you know, we have a lot of business interests there too. In all of these places, we have, you know, large, you know, freight companies and oil industry involvement. And uh, so the Americans are, uh, you know, deeply invested in a lot of countries of Latin America. And they can get us there, is what they're telling us, uh, not just in the United States. So I went to Nicaragua 10 years ago and, you know, literally banged on the gates of the Iranian consulate there that had just opened. You could see the flag there. And I was demanding an interview with the ambassador. And of course, you know, that didn't go very far, uh, like a, maybe a few days of uh, banging on the gate there. Uh, the Iranians had, to, to me, Iran, Iran and Hezbollah are sort of the same entity. So when I say Iran, I mean Hezbollah, too, in the IRGC. It's all the same. Uh, they facilitate uh, one another's movement through safe houses and embassies and all the rest of that. Uh, so the Iranians had been uh, making you know, economic uh, promises of investments to the Nicaraguans, saying that they were going to build all kinds of infrastructure and they were going to do all these things and build housing and all the rest of that. And so I went to the to investigate that whole thing and came back with a report, which is on my website still. And uh, not one other American reporter to this day has followed me down there. I, I'm still the only American reporter that has ever gone down to check on this uh, Iranian presence in Nicaragua. Now that I'm free, I'd love to go down again, see what's going on with that. And and the thing is, what to, to me, the reason why I asked you about Isabella in Panama, but you know the same thing really applies to Nicaragua. Is that if that is the built-in controlled flow of Middle Easterners, you better believe they're going to have an interest there, even if it's not so much for targeting Panama itself. And you mentioned there is a prominent Jewish community among other targets they'd want to um, uh, attack, but it's it's more the flow up to our southern border. If I were them, I would take advantage of that. That is the way to really put the screws to us. Um, and again, you know, I, I had Joseph Humeyer on the show a couple months ago when we were talking about Russia and, you know, the threat of Russia. And, you know, he talked about Nicaragua, like you talking about um, with uh, I Iranian influence. Wherever you have Iranian influence in Latin America, you got Chinese and Russian influence. And again, it's only Syria. Man, we, we can't allow the Russians or Iranians to, you know, uh, to control Syria, even though we're actually fighting the Sunni insurgency on their behalf and making it easier for them. But that's a different story. But these same people don't seem to care about their hegemony in our own backyard in the most sensitive area that affects the, um, affects the migration flow directly into our country, which is directly how they affect us, which is directly – um, how they put the screws to us. My concern, and I'm curious what you think from an intel standpoint, putting yourselves, putting yourself in the shoes of the enemy, is that we're going to get what we have in Europe. In Europe, um, 
they 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 own them. I mean, they have so many migrants. They are so many terrorists that are now homegrown. They could turn that switch on any time. And Caroline Glick has done a good job of showing this. How every time, right before Iran wants to exact a concession on cooperation with the nuclear deal on the sanctions they turn them on and they plot ter- terror attacks against Europe. And then the Europeans are like, oh, no, no, okay, <laughs> whatever you want. It's almost like they permanently have a rope around their neck. And that's what concerns... You're right that as it stands now, they have too much money to lose by taking us off, turning on the switch yet. But that's a double-edged sword because that demonstrates how strong they are in America, in Latin America. And at some point, my fear is they're going to reach that critical mass where they could start turning on that switch. Well, that's a completely legitimate concern. Uh, if if you um, talk to Homeland Security, uh, uh, our people, uh, you know, their you know, FBI offices all over the country have Hezbollah units. That's all they do, and Iran units. They're working on this as a counterterrorism, a counterintelligence, also counterterrorism issue. Uh, we we do care about this. This is something that's not going completely uh, unaddressed in Homeland Security circles. I know that. I've met the guys. I, I've uh, spent time with them in all kinds of different FBI offices. They're out there. But the general public generally doesn't know about any of this because it's secret. You know, you know they're not going to put a press release out every time they, you know, break into a cell somewhere and get an informant in there because it'll wreck the whole thing. Uh, but the Congress border too. Is, Congress knows nothing about this. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you can know about something if you want to know about it. The information's there. If you're a member of Congress, you, you can know about this if you want to. But if you don't want to know about it, or if you're a denialist, uh, uh, you know, you're not going to know about it. You don't want to know about it <laughs> because it's not real. It's something being made up. Like the border infiltration issue is always kind of put out there as sort of a, you know, a fake made up thing. <laughs> but there are real people, Americans, that are working on that issue day and night. And there's money going into it as well. Maybe not enough. Sure. And maybe it's an, an imperfect system, but there, there, there is something happening with it. Uh, and it's not just the border. The border is one avenue for entry to the United States. There are lots of different avenues. Oh, yeah. But we we can't forget that avenue. And since what the country is talking about most often right now is the border and migration, like, why not talk about this, too? I don't I mean, that's, yeah. this is the time to talk about that avenue. But but my, my concern also is that it's more so the last couple of years than ever before, because Obama blew open these ma- blew these magnets wide open, and the same magnets that are bringing in Central Americans bring in everyone. I mean, you have in the northern border. Um, I hear from a lot of law enforcement they're getting Romanian gypsies. I mean, anyone will come if you offer them status, or they feel they're gonna kind of get in or catch and release. So you're gonna get it. That's number one. Number two, you had the Iran deal with Operation Cassandra that um was shut down. Thankfully, that was you know restarted. Uh, to go after Hezbollah in Latin America, you have the drug trade, which is more insane than it was ever before. So I think all those um, factors aggravating each other would lead anyone to say you have to rethink the the priority or threat level you ascribe to 
terrorism in the southern border relative to any other time in our history, right? I mean, with all this stuff going on. Yeah, and I mean, really, the the Europe, the situation in Europe uh, probably augurs more uh, for that than than anything because it's been just bloody mayhem from one end of the continent to the other since the migrant crisis of 2014, 2015 on into 2016, because terrorists came in over the borders after smuggling long distances overland from other countries as far away as it's not just Syrians, but I think the second highest number of migrants were coming out of Afghanistan, uh, where, where, um, you know, we have the Taliban and all kinds of other uh, unsavory terrorist groups and committing uh, attacks, actual kinetic attacks and running gun battles through the streets, Uh, you know, bombs blowing up houses and, uh, you know, battles and stabbings on commuter trains and all the rest of that. That that is what we're talking about here on a smaller scale. But it's definitely... Uh, you know, presaging uh, something that could be happening here as well if we're not paying attention to it or if we're in denial about it. And now's the time to do it. I mean, it, I, it, everyone's like, well, Daniel, it's not quite as bad as Europe. Well, gee, I mean, I, I don't want to wait until it gets that bad. The idea is when you look at the migration trends, we're about a half a generation behind them in terms of demographics. It's it's accelerating. We, we have the terror finance problem. We have all these same kind of Muslim Brotherhood type of front groups, Hezbollah front groups. Um, you know, engaging in terror finance and then even, like you mentioned, cloak and dagger tactics potentially that could go kinetic. You have the border problem and, you know, it's more subtle than in Europe, but, you know, now's the time where it's a big enough of a problem to deal with, but not so bad that it's like Europe. This is the window to deal with it. Um, and, you know, we, we need people like you. You're You're the only one covering so much of this. And I know my audience eats it up. They're going to follow you at um, Benzman Todd on Twitter. We'll link to as much as of your work as possible. I know you got to run. Any closing thoughts for for our audience before you leave? No, not really. Just that um, you know, we I think the the government uh, shutdown and the issues surrounding that uh, ought to uh, you know focus its attention on this part of the border, uh, this avenue of entry. It's happening. It's true. Uh, I saw it. I've interviewed the migrants, and uh, the interviews are published. I don't know um, how uh, much longer people can can say it's not happening, but uh, you know, the next look for the for, for Donald Trump to say it again, and you'll see this whole cycle happen again. But um, it's best to be uh, fact based. Uh, I, I, am not, uh, interested in, you know, hyperbolic, uh, you know, co- commentary about these issues. I like, I like to just be able to show you photographs, you know, and videotape of, of interviews with people on their way here. And that's what, that's what I came back with from Panama and Costa Rica. And, and that scares me a lot more than the hyperbolic stuff. You know, I, I think what you're referring to is in the past, some publications put out stuff like there's an ISIS training camp right across the border. And it doesn't work that way. It's a lot more subtle. Um, you know, it doesn't mean it's not a big of a threat. It's just inaccurate, uh, that type of stuff. And I think, you know, everyone appreciates that your stuff is just, 
you know, really painstaking in terms of details and um, seeing is believing. I mean, you can't say the Middle Easterners aren't there when you not only saw them, but uh, the governments of America and Panama have a system through which to deal with them and deport them or conveyor belt style, bring them up north. So uh, we're going to have you back again. Safe travels. Happy New Year. And uh, please do come back again. Yeah, anytime. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, we'll talk to you again, Daniel. God bless. Take care. There you have it. That was Todd Benzman of Center for Immigration Studies. Again, spent a decade at Texas DPS Intel. Uh, spent many years uh, as a reporter covering Latin America and terrorism and the mix of the two before that. He's a really rare breed, if you could tell, that he has ace journalistic skills as well as Intel skills. It's just, it's truly. Uh, very unique. I, I don't know of any other person with that skill set. And you certainly see he does a very good job at it. And we're going to you know, just cover all of his work uh, uh, on all these issues, the domestic terror trials, uh, Latin American affairs, Hezbollah in Latin America, and the flow of Middle Eastern immigrants up Latin America. This is why we have a government. And, and again, it's not that the executive branch, especially under Trump, is not trying to deal with this. But you know, you need Congress to prioritize this as a, as a policy matter. And instead, we have senators saying, oh, screw the border. I'm, I'm worried about crumbling Syria. Unbelievable. That is the government shutdown we have. We have the shutdown of the entire premise of why we have a federal government. This that we talked about today, this intel briefing we got from Todd, should be the number one focus in all of its related issues because Iran ties in, Russian China tie in, terrorism, immigration, terror finance, the drug trade. It all ties back to this issue of the migrant flow, drugs, migrants, and terrorism, as Rahani warned. We're going to have a lot more later this week. We're way over time. Thanks for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 